Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's start with the Fed. Let's start with that two-day Fed meeting. Uh, Richard Clarida joining us now. He's a global strategic advisor at PIMCO and the C. Lowell Harris Professor of Economics and a Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Rich, great to speak with you once again. Let's start with this meeting. As, as I said, what are you looking for here? Not a whole lot of drama as we're not going to get much commentary aside from the statement tomorrow. That's right. You know, David, and thanks for having me on, trick or treat. Uh, you know, I think that uh, <laughs> tomorrow is really a place uh, – today's a placeholder – uh, you know, the Chair Yellen likes to say every meeting is live, but nobody really uh, uh, believes that. Uh, the, there will be an important meeting in December where, where I expect they will be hiking. You know, in the minutes from the September meeting, it was revealed that many participants thought a rate hike would be appropriate later this year, which I think means December. So I think tomorrow, minimal changes to the statement, probably acknowledging the stronger GDP growth and then teeing up that hike at the December meeting. What do you make of that latest G- uh, GDP read? Of course, we heard a, a, a lot of positive spin from, from the White House, from the administration about it. Uh, indications it is, a, on principle, a good thing. But uh, what did you make of it and what should we make of the, the data that we got last week? Well, David, thank you. You know, it was a positive surprise. Many folks, including myself, thought that with the hurricanes uh, in the third quarter that, that it would have a negative hit to, to GDP in the event we got a 3% headline number. Now, a lot of that was some inventory adjustment. The underlying trend in the economy, I think, seems to be a little bit north of 2%. But still, we've had back-to-back 3% quarters uh, for one of the few times in this recovery. So, you know, when we get good news, we should uh, value it. How's the Fed going to process it? When, when they look at the data arrayed across that, uh, that conference table today, uh, how important are those figures that we got? I think that they're going to say it was a pleasant surprise. I think that they believe the momentum in the economy uh, is at or above trend growth. They expect the unemployment rate to fall in their Phillips curve model. That means they'll expect in inflation to move up towards target. Um, and to the extent that it adds some noise uh, to the data, I think they'll probably look through it. So I w- as I said, I expect minimal changes uh, to the statement today, but to tee up a December uh, rate hike. Let me ask you about the personnel a bit, this process playing out in a way that yeah. we haven't seen uh, before over a period of time longer than we've seen uh, in the past. Tell us a bit about uh, Governor Jerome Powell, Jay Powell. What do you know about him and, and how might he operate uh, as a Fed chair reporting, indicating sure. the president's likely to pick him and likely to make that announcement on Thursday? Well, you know, Jerome Powell has had a very distinguished career uh, as a senior treasury official in in the George H.W. Bush administration. He's been a Fed governor since 2012. Uh, You know, he's very thoughtful based upon his comments and and writings. I think we would expect, the markets would expect, that that really a Powell nomination to chairman is really a continuity choice with regards to monetary uh, policy, and so I think if it is uh, if it is Powell, I think that he will be seen as as really a, a continuity uh, for the Yellen gradual uh, normalization of, of of monetary policy. Is he is he a proxy for Janet Yellen for the Fed chair? Uh, in other words, how closely aligned uh, is their thinking on monetary policy? Well, as you know, in our in our system, it, it's unusual for presidentially appointed. Uh, members of the board to dissent. I don't think he's ever dissented from uh, a decision, and if he had, that would have been unusual. So, so certainly at each Fed meeting, uh, he has voted with uh, the chair. Uh, you know, his writings uh, indicate that he has some comfort for this idea of what I've called the new neutral for monetary policy, that in this rate hike cycle, rates are going to be going up to a much lower level than we saw uh, in in the past. I think perhaps potentially one potential 
difference with Yellen, although not a dramatic difference, uh, is his approach to financial regulation. He seems to be somewhat more receptive to the idea that the pendulum perhaps has swung a little bit too far, and he might be more open-minded to some adjustments in financial uh, uh, regulation post-crisis. Richard Clarendo with us of Columbia University in PIMCO. Tom Keene wandering into the studio, bounding in the studio, I should say. Wearing a, what is this, bunny ears? It's bunny ears. I I, I was going to go as a dove or a hawk, but that got vetoed. because I couldn't be biased. Richard Clarity, good morning to you, sir, Um, as well. Richard, is this any way to pick a chairman? I I mean, within the the history back to William McChesney Martin and and all that we see, we know it's the President of the United States and it's the apprentice, but are we demeaning or debasing your economics? You know, Tom, I, I don't think so. By all, you know, obviously there are some new dimensions here. He liked the Instagram video, and, Tom. That's what he's um, saying. Um, but, you know, I think the president, from all accounts, has run a very thorough choice. They've inter- interviewed five very capable and accomplished uh, uh, people. Obviously, in this era, you know, news comes out in a different form than it did uh, in the past. But, you know, the folks on this short list all are very, yes. very serious and accomplished individuals. So uh, he's choosing from the right uh, group of people, I think. Yeah, that very politically answered, if I've ever heard a, a political answer <laughs> as well. Another another um, uh, important question, Rich Claret, is I saw a run rate for GDP in the twos. Michael Feroli, a very accomplished at J.P. Morgan, suggests potential GDP under 2 percent, well under 2 percent. Is there any way we get to a sustained 2.8 or 3% economy? Can we migrate back to mourning in America? Well, you know, Tom, it, we certainly cannot do so under the current tax uh, code. And I, so I think the ability of the economy to grow... Uh, you know, north of well north of two and approaching three is really going to depend on getting the adjustments in the corporate tax code. You know, we essentially encourage companies down to invest abroad. We've been underinvesting uh, in our workers, and I'm, I'm confident that if we don't get a better tax code, it's going to be very tough to grow. Uh, you know, at three uh, percent, depending on what what's in the what's what's in the tax bill. Uh, then that's something that could be that's something that 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 could be thought about. But right now, it, it it'd be very difficult to see that. What do you make of this this argument for gradualism, for the gradual implementation of some of these policies? Bloomberg News reporting yesterday that we're we're perhaps likely to see that in the legislation as it's unveiled uh, yesterday. That could have a you know a, a different effect on how we view the the deficit effects of this piece of tax yeah. legislation. Does it matter if the if the changes are implemented uh, immediately and initially, or or if they're implemented gradually? Well, you know, that, that's an excellent point, David, because, in fact, when you're talking about tax policy, phasing in things can be very, very tricky if, unless you design it very carefully. Because, in essence, what you do is, depending on how it's phased in, you essentially encourage firms to delay investing until new rates kick in. And so, if anything, that can have a depressing effect on the you know, economy. And think of the limiting case where, in five years, if you invest, there's a zero tax. And if you invest now, it's 35. You're going to wait. So phasing in may look good for the budget numbers, but it can be very tricky in terms of the uh, economy. So that's something I think that will have to be considered carefully. What's the House view on this? What does PIMCO think the odds are that we're going to see something here by the end of the calendar year or into the first quarter of next? Well, I think the I think the debt, to get this done in, in 2017 is going to be uh, tough, given that we're already in uh, in November. Uh, I think we we believe that it's more likely than not that we get a package in the first quarter of, of next year. I think it's important that the House passed a budget resolution. There were some who said in September that it would be hard to get that done. 
Uh, we're going to be, I think, seeing this week uh, the House Ways and Means Committee uh, initial uh, version of the, the bill. Um, and so mm. I believe it is uh, more likely than not that we do get a bill into, into but most likely into 2018. Richard Clareta, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Uh, for your perspective uh, with PIMCO, their global strategist, and, and uh, really an important time to speak to Professor Clareta uh, about so much of what we see. David Gura, Tom Keene here in New York. It's been saying a remarkable day yesterday, continuing to follow the fallout from what happened yesterday morning. Uh, indictments uh, released by the uh, the federal prosecutor, special prosecutor Robert Mueller, uh, and we saw Paul Manafort and Rick Gates uh, turn themselves in to the FBI office uh, in Washington, uh, D.C. For some perspective on that and on tax reform as we look ahead to legislation tomorrow, Greg Vallier joins us. He's the chief global strategist at Horizon Investments. And Greg, always great to get your uh, perspective on uh, news out of Washington, uh, D.C. Let me ask you uh, just for your sense of the timing of, of all of this, uh, listening to the commentary last night from the White House, indications they think that this is uh, in its final days. Plenty of people think that this is just the, the beginning. How do you see all of this playing out? How do you see where we are at this point? Yeah, hey, David, good morning. I, to make a hackneyed uh, sports analogy, <laughs> I think we're in the second inning, maybe the third inning. we got a long way to go. There's going to be a lot more indictments to come with one big goal, and that's to get people to sing. And I do think some people are going to sing, and I do think this goes right to the White House. George Papadopoulos, tell us a bit about him uh, and your sense of him here, Greg. Uh, the, the White House taking pains to say he was a volunteer on the foreign policy team. There was just one meeting of the group of which he uh, was a part. I don't notice that distinction uh, in the uh, in the, the, the piece of, of legalese I saw yesterday. They're not making a distinction between whether someone's a volunteer or somebody who is on the paid staff. Does, does it make a difference that he was just a volunteer? No. I mean, he's a minor player, let's be candid. But at the same time, anyone who is received an email from him or has sent an email to him is probably going to be uh, questioned by the FBI. And this is just an absolute snake pit for perjury. I mean, let's face it, Washington, D.C. juries have a pretty low bar to indict. It's a very liberal uh, town, as you know. And I think to indict on perjury charges is going to be Mueller's favorite tactic as he moves up the chain of command. Greg, what I like about your latest notes is you point out there's a snake pit there to the left. Uh, you indicate that that could be a distraction. We could be watching that, and it could actually be advantageous for the president as an, and his agenda that uh, it is taking some of the focus away from what's happening on Capitol Hill and, and what's happening on the White House. Explain your thinking there. It's a bit counterintuitive. Yeah, it's, it's a little tortured logic, but very briefly, uh, I think that the tax bill has so many flaws, and it now looks like some of it's going to be phased in. It's not going to be immediate, that maybe the committee would like to d- deflect a little attention. Maybe all of this stuff with Mueller... Uh, it creates a diversion that allows the, the Ways and Means Committee to pass a bill quickly. And uh, also, yeah. maybe they want to divert attention from firing a really great Fed chairman. So there are some counterintuitive pluses uh, with all of the Mueller stuff right now. If it's the second inning, are others in that same frame of mind, or does the White House think... They need to go to the late relief. They're in the eighth inning. This will be all over by X month of next year. Well, who knows, Tom, what kind of echo chamber prevails in yeah. the White House? I, I think Trump hears only what well, he wants well, to hear. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think this, Mr. Vallier, folks, just really touched on an important thing. What did you observe in the echo chamber yesterday 
of news analysis, news pundit. David Gura, I would point out, I thought Vox was extraordinary. Uh-huh. Noah Feldman this morning in Bloomberg View is extraordinary, et cetera. But Greg, what did you observe in the analysis of these events yesterday? There's a pervasive view that everybody does it, a pox on both your houses, that the Democrats are slippery, they've got a uranium deal, you can go on and on with the Democrats. So I think for normal Americans, which excludes the three of us, of course, <laughs> but, but for normal Americans, I think this all gets very confusing. People have their own lives to lead, and that's what the White House wants. The White House wants to muddy the waters, and uh, they may succeed at that. And this goes to the, the column that Tom was just mentioning a moment ago, Noah Feldman writing about how you need a clear narrative here. Uh, and this is a story that does not have, at least at this point, a, a very clear narrative. How cognizant do you think Robert Mueller is of that as he pieces all of this together as he continues to pursue uh, this investigation? I really think he's pretty apolitical and pretty immune to all of the, the spinmeisters like the three of us. I, I think he doesn't really focus on that all that much. He's got a team of pit bull lawyers who are super aggressive and are not real subtle, and I think they will in, in, interrogate, 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 indict, 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 and this thing moves up the chain of command, and at some point, as I was saying to Tom earlier this morning, at some point the president has to think about firing this guy. Greg, uh, let me just pivot here quickly in the last minute we have with you. When, when uh, Kevin Brady, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, releases these hundreds of pages tomorrow, what are you going to be flipping through to find? What are you going to be looking for uh, in all of that legislation, keeping an eye on? Okay, quickly, state and local taxes, 401K, the fate of the estate tax, but maybe most importantly... Do these tax cuts take effect right away? Or in order to fit everything in, to pay for everything, do some of the tax cuts get phased in over two or three years? If that's going to be in the proposal, that's not a good story for the markets. Greg Vallier, thanks thanks very much, much. uh, as always. That's Greg Vallier. He's Chief Global Strategist at Horizon Investments. Uh, His morning bullets note, invaluable uh, for those who are trying to follow uh, what's going on in Washington, how it dovetails with the markets, and always great to get his perspective on what's happening in the nation's capital. We're going to touch this, David, in five things you need to know. But I I must admit, yesterday was extraordinary, particularly the follow-on of the Papadopoulos uh, guilty. Is that correct? Am I saying that correctly? Guilty? Of lying to investigators, lying to uh, FBI investigators. So we'll see what role he has played and will play here going forward. We need to thank our team. A particular shout-out in London to Stephanie Baker, who is definitive on Mr. Manafort in Ukraine. She was truly invaluable to surveillance uh, yesterday. David, do you, do you have Mr. Papadopoulos on your show today? We <laughs> do not have Mr. Papadopoulos on the show With a today, wire? So, right. Well, perhaps. I mean, that's an interesting wrinkle to all of this uh, as well. I think that I, as I listened and watched uh, TV commentary last evening, it seems like there's a lot of speculation among the, the federal former federal prosecutors I listened to that perhaps he was wearing a wire. That's why he Gosh, was brought in so early. And, and Just incredible to, to look at the timetable here uh, when he first spoke to, to investigators, when he was arrested, Dulles, many months in between there. I did note, and I think this is correct, uh, Paul Manafort's house was raided a day before uh, Mr. Papadopoulos was apprehended at Dulles International Airport. So you're right, there is a, a flavor of the cinematic to, to all of this, Tom, and uh, interesting to hear from Greg Vallier his sense of where things are, that we're in the second inning of this, uh, and we'll see what happens next. Yeah, well, we'll have to uh, see, to say the least. Right now, a good friend of the show, someone has given us terrific perspective and was long international when it was out of favor, David Harrell 
of Harris. David, have you made any changes in strategy in portfolio with the continued excellence? Has there been a Harrow shift? Well, we tend to be gradualist, Tom. Yes meaning our movements tend to be very slow and I would say evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary. But if you compare the way our portfolio looks today versus, say, one or two years ago, you'll see two things uh, that stand out. One is that there's a lot less invested in Japanese companies. And again, this is basically a function of unable to find value or companies hitting valuation targets. Uh, Japan, even though it's had a nice run price-wise, there's still all kinds of issues surrounding corporate Japan, profitability, uh, running a company for shareholder value, etc. So you see less Japanese uh, weight, a lower Japanese weight than you did a few years ago. Also, within consumer discretionary, we used to be quite heavy in some luxury good names, Kirin, Richemont, LVMH, Prada, etc., um, we've trimmed back on a lot of those, not completely sold out with the exception of Prada, where we did sell out of for uh, for company-specific reasons. But these stocks, have, again, had a very, very good run. Price has come a lot closer to value. That value gap is yeah. closed. On the other hand, within consumer discretionary, you still see a fairly heavy weighting in in um, automobiles. Uh, you see the a weight in Toyota and uh, Daimler, as well as BMW. So there has been some changes in complexion, but again, these things tend to happen slowly over yeah. time. So what do you do with Burberry? Do you own Burberry? Christopher Bailey's out the door. Everybody wants to be the next Gucci. That's part of caring. Do you, does David Harrell acquire Burberry shares, given the uproar there in management? No. I mean, first of all, I don't know if it was such a bad thing. Uh, they made a mistake, I believe, a few years ago in making Christopher, who's a very good designer, also their chief executive officer. That often does not work. Two very different skill sets, running a business and you know, designing uh, of luxury um, pants, shirts, coats, etc. And so... Uh, I, you know, I think that was a mistake, and now after after a while, he's he's leaving. Christopher Bailey was replaced as CEO a while ago, and now he's leaving as designer. So a lot of these places need a fresh shock in design, and, and this is one of the things that led to Gucci's success, is they brought someone in who was already an insider, but really understood the Gucci brand, and of mm -hmm. course, the results have been just exceptional. Mm. I mean, we're, we're seeing huge increases. Go to the Gucci store and make Oh, I would never do that. Yeah. It's, I mean, there, there's a line outside the door. In fact, that's probably the, a bigger problem now is yeah. keeping your high-end customer satisfied. David, I think the last time we had you on surveillance, it was shortly after uh, this Swiss uh, hedge fund, uh, R RBR Capital, uh, indicated it wanted to agitate for a breakup or some changes to Credit Suisse. Of course, Harris uh, has a 9% stake uh, in that in that bank. And I wonder, uh, with a few weeks' perspective here, is there anything about what that hedge fund has proposed that resonates uh, with you? How do you how do you feel about what they've proposed? Have you had uh, conversations with Rudolph Bolli, who, who who runs that hedge fund? No, they um, shared with us their proposals after it was announced. And looking through it, it's just it's just rather what I would say um, ineffective work. Meaning the assumptions they make about value creation and what needs to be done today just are not workable. 
the assumptions of valuation comparisons are, are poor comparisons. For instance, he compares the private bank of, of Credit Suisse with the Schwab investment management business. I mean, these things are very, very different. He compares the investment bank of, of Credit Suisse with Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Again, some material differences. And then he applies those multiples of these companies and puts it on what he assumes is an easily dividable financial institution. And that is an incorrect incorrect assumption in our view. It's not easily dividable. Yeah, but in the meantime, in the meantime, so much has been done over the last two years to reform and to restructure the business that now is not the time to just rip it all apart. I mean, within that wonderful answer and, and David's smart question is the idea of the timeline that corporate officers are dealing with. Within your cross-sector analysis, is a new five-year plan for corporate officers three years? And the idea of tactical is trying to get to the next quarterly report? Well, you have to make sure within your planning period, you understand what the markets will be like in three, four, or five years. If it's a slow-moving market, yes, maybe a four-, five-, six-year plan is good. But if markets are moving rapidly, if your markets are moving rapidly, if your industry is moving rapidly and think media, perhaps you have to think a little bit shorter. Not short-term, not being knee-jerk, not reacting to everything an activist investor wants, which is show me a good quarter. But building your business to compete for the future, this is what we want to see. Not being overreactive to short-term phenomena, but clearly being reactive to what's happening in your industry. David, what's it like to, to, to be involved in this, in sort of a proxy position? As I said, you have a, a larger stake in this company than uh, the, the gentleman who's agitating for all of this. Do you, do you feel like you have to take on a, a defensive role? What's it like to be an investor with a sizable position as something like this unfolds, when you have an activist investor here trying to rally support for, for the plan that he's trying to put into place? Well, we have to stick up for our shareholders first and foremost. My responsibility is to the people who've entrusted their savings with me. And so what I have to do is do what's best for our clients and our shareholders, which in my view is pushing a management to think about medium and long-term value creation first and foremost. If giving up a quarter or two of numbers means being better prepared for the medium and long-term, and incidentally, this is exactly how we invest, mm -hmm. then by all means do it. And this is my problem with a lot of the activists and shareholders, uh, activist shareholders. Take the hedge funds. They get paid 1 in 10, 2 in 20. They get paid based on this year's numbers, which to me is a flaw. Because in capitalism, we want long-term value creation, not quick, you know, swinging for the fences, home runs. And yeah. so often, we as long-term value shareholders are in conflict with some yeah. of the activist shareholders. David, I want to spend one minute on this because we know you're a huge football fan. We've got a large part of our audience casually or intently attuned to the National Football League. What are we going to do about protecting quarterbacks? Joe Flacco? Carson Palmer, a guy named Aaron Rodgers. I mean, on and on and on, these quarterbacks go down. What, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're the guy. What do we need to do about this? <laughs> well, I don't know, Tom, but the, yeah, certainly the NFL um, has all kinds of issues today, and it isn't just the kneeling, and it isn't just what's happening with what's become a quarterback, by the way, a quarterback-dominated game. I mean, if you don't have a good quarterback, you don't have a chance. I think the key to success is a strong quarterback and a really good defense. 
probably one with a pass rush. But there's other issues with the NFL. I mean, people are, you know, these three-and-a-half-hour games, the TV timeouts, the, the uh, you know, constant stops for reviewing plays. I mean, this is taking all the fun out of watching the NFL, besides yep. the fact the players want to get political on us. Well, let's come back. David Harrow there on the NFL. I believe he can opine, Mr. Gura, on uh, politics. <laughs> he may have a passing interest in what we're seeing uh, right now. Mr. Harrow, uh, an investor in international stocks, and as we've said before, his recent performance and long-term performance is truly extraordinary looking at Bloomberg uh, data. Uh, yeah, two tweets from the president here. Quote, the fake news is working overtime. As Paul Manafort's lawyer said, there was, quote, no collusion and events mentioned took place long before he came to the campaign. He continues, few people knew the young low-level volunteer named George, who's already proven to be a liar. Check the Dems, the president writes, concludes his tweet uh, with that, of course, uh, George Papadopoulos, uh, the, the person to whom the president's referring there, uh, accused and uh, charged with lying to yeah. FBI uh, agents there. And I'll just point out as well that uh, during the campaign, the president uh, referred to this young low-level volunteer named George as an energy and oil consultant. Excellent guy. David French, uh, I have yet to get it out on Twitter. It's been such a busy morning, but I'll do that. Writing in the New York Times, and a good time to speak with David Harrow, who... Uh, enjoys a relationship with the Republican Party in the great Midwest of this nation and considered running for office in Wisconsin at some time. Uh, he is with Harris Associates. David, David French's essay is spectacular, and it talks about the fabric of this nation and how the nation, to a great extent, has been removed from the elites on the East Coast. It's a spectacular essay. How is all this playing in the land of David Harrow? Well, I mean, I have to say that people, I mean, if there's one phrase that kind of describes it, it's this drain the swamp. People in the Midwest and the South, the Southwest, you know, they they kind of view that the East Coast and the West Coast are out of touch with you know, what people go through on a daily basis, you know, wake up, work hard, pay taxes, etc. And this out-of-touchness is perhaps one of the things why we saw a surprise election last November. And it just shows, I mean, every, it was so unexpected. It was such a given. And I, I think what, what needs to happen is, is that you know, we all need to understand a little better where we're all coming from instead of, uh, you know, just shouting, you know, he who shouts the loudest gets heard. And maybe this is one of the whole weaknesses of the social media phenomena is people don't listen and understand where other people are coming from. And I think this is, you know, something we all need to focus on is listen to the other side and and try to try to understand their perspective. And, and the context of where someone else is coming from when they make a statement. David, let me ask you about uh, tax reform pivoting to policy here in the last couple of minutes that we have uh, with you. We're expecting some legislation from the House Ways and Means Committee uh, tomorrow. From a market's perspective, how important is it? How, how, how uh, closely are you going to be looking at that document when it's produced tomorrow? Well, I think it's very important. And one year I was driving in and I heard, I think it was the guy from Columbia said it. Was it did you have a guess from Columbia? Yeah, Rich Clarida. Yep, yep. Oh, he, he was so good. And what he was talking about, you can't extend this thing over four or five years. Um, you, what you have to do is realize the importance of expectation uh -huh. and the importance of confidence. And when people <clears throat> are confident, they will move 
uh, very aggressively. And what we want are people to invest. We want people to hire. We want these things to happen. We don't want this delayed over three, four, five years. And we want to take distortions so people can make clean economic decisions. We don't want them distorted by certain tax expenditures and tax benefits. We want level playing fields. And these are all the things that I believe should be in this tax document. Less distortions, which means less giveaways and lower rates and more immediacy. Don't stretch this thing out. You're just delaying the positive impacts of it. I thought your guest did an excellent job at explaining the weaknesses of that approach. One last question here just about uh, your portfolio. Uh, we had Ray Dalio on the show last week out with a new book, his principles, putting them on, on paper, and uh, he declined to talk about some of the positions that, that he has, but it's reported that he has a $713 million uh, wager against Italian banks, including one I know that you're invested in, that is uh, 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 Intesa San Paolo. How do you react to that? How do you react to, we were talking about sort of the, the, the agitation of a hedge fund manager trying to shake up or break up a, a bank. How do you uh, work against or make your case against a short position like that one? How much do you have to respond to that? Um, this is actually kind of positive for us because what often happens is these types of um, actors within the global financial environment, they make broad generalizations. They say, well, I don't like Italian banks, or I don't like media companies, or I don't like Glencore, or I don't like... And then, you know, they short it, they pressure the share price down, but what they don't realize is within that generalization, our exceptions are very good companies, and Intesa is a very good company. And by the way, the banking system of of Italy, and especially northern Italy, has been doing uh, nothing but improving. So we're happy to own it. We're happy to take advantage of generalizations. Uh, Mr. Dalio is a very good investor, and he may very well make money. But I also believe that um, he can make money, and maybe I can make money, too, <laughs> if my bank outperforms you know, the, the universe that he's shorting. <clears throat> But I, I well, don't have such a negative view on the Italian banking system. In fact, I think well, they've taken the necessary steps to improve it. I'll just leave it there, David Harrell. Harris Oakmark, thank you. This is Bloomberg. This is a pleasure. David Gurr and I welcome a good friend of ours. Uh, Jeffrey Jarvis, Jeff Jarvis, you know, what would Google do a million years ago? The movie's out for Memorial Day viewing. But far more importantly, really thinking about the media, the Internet, and the space. He does it at uh, CUNY, C-U-N-Y, Graduate School of Journalism. I've had the privilege of darkening the door there to talk about the future that I see in conversation uh, within news. Jeff Jarvis, David Gurr is going to lead the charge on this, but I am sort of stunned that we're trying to have the internet leaders be the adults in the room. How are they supposed to figure out fake news on Facebook? Is it their obligation to police idiots? No, because there's too damn many of them. Uh, But uh, I do think they have to figure out what their public responsibility and standard is. Right now, the standard is set down about, oh, we don't like child porn. Right. And the standard maybe right. needs to be a little bit higher than that. You know, let's not harass women. Um, uh, let's not have a thousand bots uh, ruining the world. I, I do think that they need to have higher standards, but I want to be very careful about those standards being set externally by government. 
You know, I, I wonder what you make of what we've heard from a number of these companies, that it's very difficult to police from a technical perspective. Our Sarah Fryer reporting on Facebook's difficulty just wading through complaints about uh, various posts. And I think back to the piece that Jeffrey Rosen wrote for the New York Times Magazine now well over five years ago about uh, how YouTube was operating at that point. The people who sat in this dark room looking at screens, uh, reviewing videos that people had complained about. From a technical perspective, how hard is it to do this, to feel these kind of complaints, to police these social media networks? And is is that a, a complaint that has salience to you? Do, do you? do you empathize at all or sympathize at all with these tech companies when they complain about the difficulty of doing it? I, I do, but I think that there are ways to do it. One, they work very hard with AI to, to, to learn the signals and patterns of bad behavior, which obviously always change. Two, they have users that do bring complaints to them, and the more they encourage that, the better. Three, I think we separate out here content from advertising, and advertising is easier to police, though advertising now operates at a scale that it never operated in our world in media, so it's not easy, but I think yeah. it's possible. I look at the, the title of this hearing that's going to take place before this Judiciary Subcommittee this afternoon at 2.30 at Wall Street Time. We're going to have coverage of it, of course, here on Bloomberg TV and, and Bloomberg Radio. Uh, extremist content and Russian disinformation online working with tech to find uh, solutions. What does that mean? What does working with tech exactly. look like? How is this government yeah, going to work matter. with tech? I'm very worried about uh, regulating the Internet. I think it's too early. In Gutenberg years, it's about the year 1479. And we don't know what the it is yet. The parchment isn't dry yet. That's right. This is 500 years today. Since, I was only uh, doing Luther. three hours a day in 1479. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just so everybody understands. You got up later. Um, so today is the day when Martin Luther, uh, 500 years ago, posted his tweets on the door of the Wittenberg uh, Cathedral. And and it, it takes a long time to figure out what this stuff is. I think we still see the future and the analog of the past. Yeah. So it's too soon for government of all bodies to think that they know what the Internet is so that they can define it and limit it and regulate it. If, if but, you're just joining us, one of the great voices of journalism and thinking about media, all that all of us have to deal with with our kids and in our houses – Jeffrey Jarvis is with us from CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. David? Yeah, on that note, I wonder how things have changed here when we deal with the issue of Russian interference. You talk about child pornography or harassment of women or any number of things. Does the government feel a greater uh, impulse to get involved when you have something like political interference? Did that change the, the calculus here? Yes, I think it went on to their yard and they want to try to get it off. Uh, but um, Michael Godwin, who wrote the famous uh, Godwin's Law, has been saying on Twitter lately that he fears, as do I, that there is a backlash coming to technology, a moral panic even. And he argued on Twitter yesterday that um, media are screaming about this, politicians are screaming about this, but the public not so much. The public is using Twitter and is using Facebook. I, I think mm -hmm. that those services have to worry about the quality of their experience. Google said recently, Ben Gomes, who's in charge of search engineering at Google, one of the most popular and powerful men on earth, uh, he said that Google henceforth would start to account for the reliability, yeah. authority, and quality of sources. That's a big deal. That's a step toward a flight to quality. Mm. Part of your charm is you've actually understood there's payrolls to be met health care has to be paid for, et cetera. How is the profitability of the new news doing? Every nine months, 10 months, there's a major implosion where somebody goes down in flames. But the things that are out there, the Atlantic experiment that Jeff is doing, uh, the Vox experiment that Ezra's doing, are any of these things going to really get traction be profitable and employ warm bodies? Yes, I, I absolutely think so. The Atlantic uh, was bought by uh, Larry and Powell Jones. Uh, jo uh, Mrs. Jobs. Uh, thank you, Jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Vox is, I think, profitable right now. The Washington Post is doing well. 
you know, I, I think on one of the big lessons of this Russian uh, brouhaha right now is that Facebook said this morning that the Russian uh, fake news factory got 126 million people seeing their junk. Yeah. Well, why aren't we doing that in media? Why aren't we joining the conversation? What, instead, we think the media is still a destination you have to come to, like an old institution. Instead, when my daughter uses uh, uh, YouTube, she's saying this speaks for me. She passes it along in her conversations. Why don't we make journalism into truth bullets that people can fire on their own? Because well, that 126 million okay. number means in, that it, people share that in stuff. In the time we've got left, what would Google do? This is a big mystery. What would YouTube do? What's the Jarvis prescription for YouTube really to get traction in the news business? I don't see it. I, I, well, I think that you do see a lot of companies, uh, podcasts. I'm on a podcast every Wednesday afternoon called This Week in Google. About 75,000 people watch it. Highly loyal. It makes money. It's possible to use YouTube to make news. I don't think it's YouTube's job YouTube. to become news, but it's possible Dave, to make businesses there. David, get another question here, Sammy. Did you see how he got that shameless, shameless plug plot. in there? It's amazing how Jarvis does that. That was PhD level. Jeff Jarvis with Twit.tv slash live. There you go. With, with about 30 seconds left here. Are we seeing that gap between Washington and Silicon Valley narrow at all? We're not going to see Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg on Capitol Hill today. Are these companies making strides enough here to, to narrow that gap between Silicon Valley and Washington? When you consider their early days, they spent nothing on lobbying. Uh, and they didn't really pay attention to the pol political world. Now they spend a fortune on lobbying yes. because they realize they have to. Uh, the, the problem is, can we educate lawmakers into understanding what the Internet is? I think that's the hardest task. Jeff Jarvis, thank you very much. Appreciate the time today as we look forward to these hearings. We, uh, the first of which is this afternoon at 2.30 uh, Wall Street Should we time. plug our podcast or is that like, you know, a folks <laughs> podcast? one plug per, per, per uh, yeah. segment here. Okay. What's the name of your podcast again? Uh, this Week in Google. This Week in Google. This Week in Google. Very good. <laughs> Jeff Jarvis, thank you so much. Of thank course, you with CUNY. Always, and, and really can't say enough about it. It's really a timeless book. What would Google do? bring in our next guest but I will say that in preparation for Watergate there was a primer David Gura which is in October of 1969 a movie came out and it was called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid <laughs> and there was a very famous line in it that they played through the sparseness of the script George Roy Hill's script who is that guy or who are those guys and so go forward what seemed like two years, three years, four years, and through a wall of Watergate, there was one guy where you would go, who is that guy? And he's our guest, and we're honored this morning. That's uh, Richard Benveniste, who joins us now on Bloomberg Surveillance. He was a former Watergate special prosecutor, a partner of Meyer Brown now, and he uh, was a member, of course, served the nation as a member of the 9-11 uh, Commission after the uh, terrorist attacks of that date back in 2001. Great to have you with us. Uh, I spent some time yesterday on the uh, end train reading the, the complaints that were unsealed uh, yesterday, learning about Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, and one George Papadopoulos. And I, I wonder, just first of all, how you'd advise one to, to familiarize oneself with what, what happened yesterday. Uh, as you read these complaints, what stood out to you? Well, good morning, first of all, and uh, thanks for that nice introduction. Uh, there's a lot to unpack in uh, each of these indictments. I think you start out by saying um, that uh, Robert Mueller is running a, an efficient, and appropriate investigation. He has uh, wide uh, authority to investigate, and he is doing so in uh, 
a proper manner with no leaks, no drama, no television. Uh, it's all here it is in uh, black and white on paper. This is how we speak uh, in court quite properly. So if you look at Manafort's uh, indictment, you see uh, Manafort and Gates. Um, Gates was sort of the COO of Manafort's operation. Mm -hmm. Uh, you see a variety of financial crimes, uh, staggering, really, in terms of uh, uh, violations of the tax code, uh, money laundering, violations of the Foreign uh, Agent Reporting Act, um, a variety of different crimes, uh, which uh, total a staggering uh, penalty if you total them all up, as well as a forfeiture, which uh, could result in a very, very substantial uh, financial penalty to Manafort. Uh, so that's Manafort, former campaign chair. Mm -hmm. um, Kind of similar in a way to Watergate, where the campaign chair was John Mitchell, uh, of course, who was one of the primary defendants in that case. Young. So a lot of pressure on Manafort and Gates by reason of the penalties they face. Uh, to cooperate. What can you, you, you divine or what can you surmise about where this investigation stands based on what we saw yesterday? I, I was hearing a lot of speculation about uh, this being the beginning of the investigation, uh, going, at the, you know, going to this level before you go to the next. What can you tell about the status of a criminal investigation from what we learned yesterday? Well, you can tell that um, it's it's going forward in a methodical way. Uh -huh. the, uh, the Papadopoulos uh, indictment comes more as a surprise. Manafort um, and his uh, financial crimes that are alleged uh, uh, were fairly well known um, by reason of earlier reporting. Papadopoulos, however, is somewhat under the radar and kept that way by reason of an agreement uh, initially to um, cooperate uh, with the special counsel's office uh, once he was arrested um, uh, months ago. And so um, this provides a little more um, uh, of subject matter for discussion as to what that co cooperation might have entailed since his um, guilty plea was kept or agreement to plead guilty was kept uh, secret uh, for so yeah. long. Was he asked um, to make telephone calls, wear a wire, uh, cooperate right. in more right. um, proactive ways than simply right. providing information about what he knew? In, in, in one of your books, Richard Benvenista, with us, folks, and we're going to continue with this. I love this sentence. I watched John Dean drone through his fantastic testimony about the Watergate cover-up on television in the living room of my Manhattan apartment. Uh, Richard, I saw that flat on my back in my parents' family room from a hockey in injury. We were both stunned by that. Are we going to have those moments here? Are we going to have those seared into our memory Watergate moments throughout this investigation, or is it going to be a new model? 
I think it's going to be something of a new model, mainly because of the difficulties um, that uh, the congressional committees are having in getting traction and going forward. Uh, you, you remember that during Watergate, both uh, houses were controlled yeah. by the Democrats. Here, the reverse is the case, and it's much more difficult yeah. uh, going forward. Yeah. But I think you're going to see something quite interesting on the on the uh, question of Russian um, uh, interference with our uh, presidential election. What mm-hmm. that means in terms of the Papadopoulos indictment and how that coordinates in time uh, with the attempt right. uh, to compromise the uh, top leaders of uh, the Trump inner circle during that meeting well, at Trump Tower. We're going to come back and talk about that. I want to talk about it very quickly here. Your classic book, Stonewall. Is this president going to stonewall this investigation as you titled Watergate in your book? Well, so far, he's done much more than Stonewall. He has claimed that it's a witch hunt, that it's fake news, and uh, has has much more volubly uh, uh, attacked the prosecutor and attacked the premise of the investigation yeah. than Nixon ever did, although they did put out the third-rate burglary uh, of the Watergate that Stuck well, quite some time. let's do this just because of time. David Gurr is going to come back. He's got a wall of questions here wrapped around uh, his good work. This is wonderful. Richard Benvenista with us. For all of us of a certain vintage, it was extraordinary to see his work and many others, uh, including the defense of, of President Nixon years ago in Watergate. Richard Benvenista with us this morning, and we will uh, continue. Let me ask you about something that the White House keeps bringing up. That is that when you look at George Papadopoulos, he was a volunteer uh, on the campaign. He was not a paid uh, staff member. Does that distinction matter, Mr. Benveniste? No, it doesn't. Uh, In terms of the uh, facts that are laid out in the indictment, uh, it appears that uh, he was encouraged by others in the campaign. Uh, He he met with uh, the president uh, to uh, discuss, uh, among other things, uh, the overtures that he had received uh, from the Russians. And what is really interesting, I think, is the parallel between what we see in this indictment and the information we've received previously about the meeting at Trump Tower with uh, Natalia uh, Veselnitskaya, um, who uh, made a similar uh, overture to Donald Trump Jr. uh, through cutouts um, about providing uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton, emails and other information that uh, Trump uh, Jr. responded uh, to by saying, Mm. I love it, and setting up the meeting that uh, who attended that meeting, uh, Manafort, then the Uh, campaign chair, as well as son-in-law Jared Kushner. So it appears that um, if one were to string these facts together, um, as early as March uh, of 2016, uh, there's an attempt um, to uh, interest uh, young Papadopoulos in uh, discussing um, Russian contacts, 
uh, and that's picked up uh, and goes forward uh, through the time that the Trump Tower meeting takes place. So there's an indication of interest by the Trump campaign, which then culminates, perhaps culminates, in the uh, meeting at Trump Tower, where the same inducement is made for providing adverse information. Dirt, yeah. We know we know from our intelligence agencies that this is a very typical technique by Soviet intelligence, now Russian intelligence, um, to compromise their targets. Let me ask you lastly just about the role of a grand jury in an investigation like this when you hear the clearing of complaints from folks on the right in particular that um, uh, the, the burden here is, is uh, you know, the, the defense doesn't have much of a say in a grand jury a case and, and, and uh, it doesn't take much to, to bring somebody before a, a grand jury or to indict somebody by a grand jury. What do you, help us understand the role a grand jury plays in an investigation like this one. Well, the grand jury uh, has the right to ask questions. They vote on the indictment. Their advisor is uh, the government. Uh, so in that sense, the lawyers for the targets of the investigation do not have the right to appear uh, or ask questions of witnesses. In that sense, um, since the beginning of um, modern jurisprudence, mm. Uh, the grand jury, which has, uh, which was created as a buffer uh, between the king and uh, the uh, uh, the defendant, uh, to provide a level of uh, due process uh, by reviewing the evidence, has become more and more a tool of the prosecution. That being said, it's no different in this case than in any other. Richard, thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's Richard Benveniste, a partner at My Brown, a former Watergate special prosecutor, member of the 9-11 Commission, joining us here on Bloomberg Surveillance to talk about those indictments uh, unsealed yesterday, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.